so um, what I want to do is, before we jump in, I want to pray. Uh, we are obviously entering into a little bit of a new season, uh, 2018. Uh, you guys know that, right? New year. Um, you guys have a good year last year? Yeah, that's good. Um, anyways, um, we are entering in a brand new year, 2018. It's an opportunity for us to, uh, you know, think about the type of people we want to become in 2018, the people that God wants to shape us into becoming. And one of the things that we've been talking about for the past several months is this thing called the Year of Biblical Literacy. So I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. But what I want to do first, I want to pray, and then I'll kind of segue and enter into what we'll talk about, um, and then uh, hopefully it'll all make sense to you guys. You won't be lost. So let me pray. We'll jump in. God, thank you for this opportunity to enter into a brand new season. Thank you, God, that in new seasons we have opportunities for new growth and ways to be transformed in new ways. So, Jesus, do a fresh work in our hearts, in our community, in our church family. And not just simply here, but God, every blessing you give is always intended to be a blessing to extend it to others. So, God, have your way this morning. Let it begin a fresh work in us that won't stop here in San Luis, but go way beyond into the uttermost parts of the world. So start something fresh, we pray. We give you our hearts right now, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. So we're entering into what we have been calling the Year of Biblical Literacy. We didn't make this up. Uh, this kind of came forth from a group of churches and communities and seminary teachers uh, from Reality San Francisco, as well as the people that have created the Bible Project. If you're familiar with their videos, we've watched uh, many, many, many of them over the years. Um, so they began this as a way of trying to help the general body of Christ to understand a little bit more about the Scripture, um, assuming that for the most part, we as a society of people who follow Jesus, for the most part, have a very low literacy rate of Scripture. Meaning, we know more about other things in this world than we actually know about the very scriptures that formed and shaped the early followers of Jesus. And even more importantly, Jesus himself. Jesus, I think you would say, had a very, very high literacy idea and rate of scripture. He loved scripture. His community of followers loved the scripture. So we want to be shaped into that same type of community of those that followed Jesus. And so to do that, we have to, first of all, recognize the fact that there are some challenges that we have as a community, meaning there are elements within our society and our community that for the most part, we don't understand scripture. We are more adept at understanding the cultural narrative, meaning the ways of this world, more so than we are the scripture. And so what we hope to do in 2018 is to try to undo that, to address that, but ultimately to try to equip you guys with some tools uh, to not only read scripture, but also to help kind of cast a vision for the big picture of what scripture is all about. So I want to jump in, and I want to ask a series of questions, and we'll begin to take a look at some passages of Scripture and uh, hopefully give you guys a little bit of a vision of what we will be doing for the next uh, several weeks, maybe more so about two and a half months to three months or so of teachings here on Sunday mornings, and hopefully it'll make some sense to you. So first of all, question that I think we oftentimes ask or need to wrestle is questions like this. Why should we read the Bible? Is the Bible reliable? 
Should a 3,500-year-old book with outdated laws be given authority over our lives today? And if so, which laws? And then, who gets to decide which laws? Who makes the decisions? Where did the Bible come from? Is the book that we describe as the word, quote-unquote, word of God, where did it come from? Did it come from heaven, out of heaven, planet Earth? Or was it created or written by people? And if so, people wrote it. Did they make mistakes? If they made mistakes, what are those mistakes? And if there are mistakes, should we even consider the entire Bible reliable if they made mistakes? And if so, what portions of Scripture should we accept as reliable and others should we reject as unreliable? These are questions that people ask. What's the purpose of the Bible? What's the big sweep? What's the big aim? What's the goal? What's God up to in this book that we have on our laps or in an app? Uh, how should we approach the Bible? Uh, what's supposed to be in it for me? What's it supposed to shape me? What is the objective or the aim if I were to align my heart with what Scripture is? These are questions that we're not going to answer, obviously, today, but I want to whet your appetite to think about. These are questions that are constantly being asked, and if you don't have reliable answers to these things, you may get lost in the milieu of the criticism and the suspicion and maybe even the cynicism that's prevalent in our world today that has called to question this, this book. So what I want to do over the next few weeks is I want to break it down. We'll basically look at two main, this will be a series of two teaching series. The first of which is we're calling the Bible, wisdom, and authority. The second of which is the story of God. So the very first one, if you want to think of it this way, is the Bible, wisdom, and authority. Uh, the idea behind this is to prepare our mental engines so as to equip you to read Scripture. So think of the next four weeks as more so being teachings about Scripture in order to help you to handle the scripture rightly. So let me give you an example. If you don't do this rightly, if you don't listen carefully to the things that are going to be communicated in the next four weeks, there is a possibility that you will read the scriptures wrong. So some of us might be a little bit taken back by that. Is it possible to read the scriptures wrong? Apparently so. Because even Jesus said of the scribes and Pharisees, these were the religious leaders, these would have been the religious authorities of the day, uh, Jesus says, you guys search the scriptures diligently because in them you think you have life, but in reality uh, you have missed the very aim of the scriptures. So even Jesus says of the religious authorities of his day that you don't read the scriptures rightly. So it's possible for us to read scriptures wrongly and come to false conclusions of who God is and therefore come to false conclusions as to how we are to respond to this God. Does that make sense? So again, you can go even further in terms of nuancing this because you'll discover that there are people that use the Bible to justify all sorts of misogyny and all sorts of racism. Um, and the reality is that this has happened in our history, even as Americans, even in our American history. People have actually used Scripture to say the white race is the supreme race and the main purpose of the white race is to overcome other uh, lesser, more powerful uh, nations and societies and ethnicities. And so, therefore, Scripture, even in certain contexts, has been abused to absolutize and to create systems of oppression in other societies and other forms of history. So the point that I would make is that Scripture can be read incorrectly. And again, we look at this a couple of weeks ago, and I kind of threw out ideas like this, is that should the Scripture be taken literally? 
And if so, what and where and what types of genres are, is, or I should say, is scripture? Um, is it story? Is it narrative? Is it poem? Is it wisdom? Are they songs? And the answer to that, of course, is yes. It's all. It's all the above. So how do you read? Do you read a song or a poem the same way that you read narrative? Or do you read uh, didactic or teaching the same way that you would read a song? So the point is, there's a lot of complexities as to how we should understand and read Scripture to take it in the context of what you had given to us. And we will be looking at over the next few weeks even uh, ways in which how the Bible is a challenge for us. Because for the most part, we are sitting, you know, 2,000 years past the time of Jesus. We have a very different cultural analysis of how we view things, of how we think about society. And the tendency or the temptation, I should say, for us is to think that the way that we see things in 2018 is the correct way. And every other form of society and every other form of life on this planet is incorrect. And what's what C.S. Lewis describes as chronological snobbery, where we think that the way that we see life and society and ideas right now are the best way. And yet what we are realizing now oftentimes is that fast forward 50 years, we will then begin to see things differently. That's just the way it is. I'm reading a book right now. It's crazy. It's called Radium Girls. It's about back in the early uh, 19th or 20th century, uh, around 1900s or so, something like that, there was a substance called radium. And it was popular to put it in tape, uh, toothpaste, in lotions, uh, within baby formula. And the idea behind it was that this radioactive substance would give you life. But they come to find out later, it actually kills you. And it was like supported, and everybody was buying it. It was like, oh, cool to drink it, and it was great. And everybody that sort of messed around with this stuff ends up dying a horrible life. I mean, we're talking like jaws fall off, bones break. It's just gnarly. But again, at one point in American society, around 1913 or so, all the way up to almost the 50s, it was like, it was cool. It was all good. It was just a normal, everyday life. Of course, yeah, 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 we use... Radium, it's awesome. And now we look back at that, we're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that actually was like, like okay to do that. But my point is that every fast forward leap in humanity, we tend to look back and we're like, what were we thinking back then? So the fact that I want to make is this, is that the Bible is a book that was written up to 3,500 years ago. So we need proper tools to understand how to read this book. It doesn't mean that if you have none of those tools that you can't read it without finding some benefit from it. So again, I want to be clear on that. The Holy Spirit is active when we read. So God can open our eyes in spite of the fact of you not having any training or thinking about how to read this book well. But what we want to do is try to at least give you some equipping to think about this. So the first series, we'll take a look at this. Uh, my good friend Jamie Pappas, who leads Crew, will be at the last uh, message of the series. He's going to do a teaching on what's called hermeneutics, which is just really the right interpretive way of understanding scripture. It's actually a great message. I've heard him teach it before, so I'm happy to have him come. And then secondly, what we'll do is we'll look at the story of God. And what we will do in this is we will basically fly or attempt to fly 30,000 feet above the entire Bible storyline to try to catch a glimpse of the overall scriptural sweep or narrative. If you want to think of it this way, um, the Bible is made of short or big stories and small stories, big stories and small stories. So there's 
uh, I think if you were to do a little bit of an interview with most people and ask them, what are, what are the small stories in the scripture? We would be quick to throw down maybe a half a dozen small stories. Well, David and Goliath, Abraham and Sarah, uh, Abraham and his son Isaac. We can throw down all these like small stories. But the big question I think we need to ask is, do you understand the overarching story of the Bible? It's one big story. Do you know what that one big story is? And what we hope to do is throughout the entire Bible, from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, try to connect this entire incredible story and understand the overarching narrative of this whole thing. And so I think, and we'll tr- well, again, basically we'll try to do that within the handful of weeks that we have, six or so, seven weeks available. So what I want to do right now is I want to begin to jump in and begin to take a look at some important things with regard to this. So first of all, let's talk a little bit about goals or aims. What do we hope to accomplish in 2018 in terms of what we're calling the year of biblical literacy? I think four things uh, would be pretty clear what we're hoping for. So number one, as we kind of look at this, I think I have a slide for this. Maybe, maybe not. Number one is that you would read scripture. Number one, our hope is that you would actually engage and em- embrace the practice of reading scripture. I realize for some that may be really challenging because even reading period is a challenge for you. I realize that. Our culture is one in which, I think when Twitter like upped its game from like 140 characters to like, what, 200? What is it now? 280. People were like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I got to read more? Like, that's twice the size of what a tweet was before. Like, that's too much. But the fact is, is that we as a culture and society are more adept at reading sound bites and news headlines than we are actually sitting down and engaging books. But throughout all society, uh, civilization, people have read. And so our hope would be, number one, would be that you would read Scripture. Number two is that you would learn how to read Scripture. Again, this is the art of interpretation, that you would learn how to read Scripture. Number three is that we would want you to learn the overarching narrative of Scripture. Again, the idea of the big story and the small story. What you would understand as far as the whole sweep of what Scripture is all about. In fact, I'll even go so far as to say, for me on a personal level, when I began probably, I mean, I've, I've been reading Scripture since I was a brand new Christian at around age 16, so a long time ago. So for me, it literally wasn't up until maybe 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, that I began to understand that there was this large sweep of Scripture, overarching narrative of what Scripture was. And probably about 10 years ago, maybe or so, a little bit longer than that, when I began to realize what the overarching narrative was, it began to blow my mind. And I began to, like, this book that I had read many times and been pretty familiar with and spent more time, and again, I would say this, I'm a total Bible geek slash nerd. Uh, The majority of my time, I spend reading scripture or reading books about scripture or listening to podcasts about scripture or listening to audiobooks that have something to do with scripture. I love scripture. But I would even go so far as to say that that being the case, there's a lot about scripture I simply just do not know. I'm kind of a rookie, honestly, as I would describe it. But the point that I would make is this, is that when I began to realize that there's this overarching story of Scripture, it began to blow my mind, began to see Scripture in a whole new light, that all of these other smaller stories actually have some sort of point of connection, where they're united, they connect somehow to this overall storyline. And if all we simply do is read Scripture as a bunch of small disconnected small stories in which we are uh, intended to somehow draw moralistic teachings from, then I would say that we've missed the point in the Bible. So in other words, if you read the story of David and Goliath as a disconnected story from the whole story, and you're like, okay, what am I supposed to take out of this? 
Five small stones. What are my giants I'm supposed to slay? I would suggest that's not how you're to read that story. That might come as a shock because there's been dozens of sermons on how to slay your giants. I get it. It's fine. But that's not the main point of that story. What is? We'll get there. But the point that I'd make is this. We want to understand what's the big sweep. The fourth thing I would say is this. We want you above and beyond everything else to be transformed. The aim of reading scripture is not just to read scripture. Look, at the end of the day, if you do nothing but just read scripture, that's awesome. I think you will benefit from that. Good things will happen. If anything, you would have learned a a dying discipline, this thing called reading. All right? That's good. If you would learn the overarching narrative of scripture, that'd be awesome. But really what we want more than anything is not for you just to read scripture or to even become familiar with it. Because look, it's possible to read scripture, to be familiar with the stories of the Bible, but not be transformed. That's, that explains the anomaly, I should say, or the reality of the angry, grumpy, rude Christian. Have you ever met that person? They're the one that knows the Bible really well. They can sit there and argue with you about Scripture. They're the ones that are constantly the most vocal on Facebook. They're the ones that are always wanting to fight and bicker and argue. And the fact of the matter is that that, that should not exist. Because what it demonstrates is that there's a high level of understanding, but not a high level of transformation. God wants to transform us. And if your aim, if our aim is just nothing more than reading the scripture and not being transformed, then you are missing the very point for which the scriptures are intended to bring about in your life. So our hope, ultimately, is that we'd be a community that are transformed by Jesus into his likeness, into his image. So what I wanted to do today is I wanted to really talk a little bit about uh, a passage, Psalm 1 is what we'll read, and uh, try to understand how God shapes us. Let me say one thing before I jump into that, that much of Western Christianity, I would say, uh, is primarily focused on Christianity as a system of belief, as opposed to a comprehensive way of life. Let me, let me, let me restate that. Much of Western Christianity sees itself as a system of belief. In other words, when we ask questions like this, well, what do you believe about God? Well, that's, that's not a bad question. And in fact, uh, that's a good question. But it's not the sum total of the question. If the aim of our Christianity is nothing more than somehow washing out false ideologies and uh, flushing in new ideologies, new ideas, new systems of belief, then we've missed it. The real aim is that we become followers of Jesus. So you can have understanding of scripture, right system of belief, but not become a follower of Jesus. In fact, if you want to press it even further, the book of James, he says that even the devil believes in God. Even the devil, let me think about that. That's a, that's a pretty like, strong statement to emphasize the reality that just because you have a right, quote unquote, right system of belief doesn't mean that you are literally being transformed or changed into the image of God. So we want to be followers of Jesus first and foremost. And I would go so far as to say that followers of Jesus want to have a right system of belief. We want to understand scripture rightly. We want to absorb the scriptures. We want to let the scriptures transform and challenge and confront us and maybe even sometimes contradict us, uh, not because the scriptures are contradictory, but the scripture, because we are oftentimes contradictions to the scripture. We want the scripture to check us so that we would then rightly align ourselves to become like Jesus. 
So, that being said, what I want to do this morning is we're going to read out of Psalm 1. I'm going to keep my words a little bit brief on this because uh, we spent a little bit of time on the intro here, hopefully setting up the next few weeks. But let's read Psalm 1, uh, and I'll make a few comments about it, and we'll wrap this up. But I want you to listen to just, just listen to the psalm. Just listen to it as I read it. Now, I mentioned this last week, and I'll mention it again this week because I realized some of you guys weren't even here last week, but I'm probably not going to be posting the scriptures on the screen for the next few weeks. So when I teach, I oftentimes have slides up there with Bible verses. I will probably not be doing that. Here's the reason. Because I want for us to be a community of people that do not simply rely upon slides as, a, as the gate of receiving scripture. I want us to be a community that says, when we gather together as a community of Jesus people, that we want to engage with the scriptures, which means go out and buy an actual Bible, um, or download an app, which is totally fine too. Or, again, I mentioned this last week, we have a growing lost and found of Bibles. It has little names on them, so you can easily use acetone and take the name off. Uh, please feel free to take home a Bible. Um, or if you don't have a Bible, we have freebie Bibles that we hand out. You're more than welcome to take one of those Bibles. But my encouragement to you would be that you bring your Bible to the gathering, that you would read along as we read along. So I typically read out of the ESV. It's the main passage or main translation. I typically use English Standard Version. Uh, oftentimes I will sometimes change it up. But the point of the matter is, is uh, bring your Bible. That's the big idea. So let me read Psalm 1. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's not very long. Then I'll make some comments on it and we'll wrap this up. So Psalm 1 says this. Let me uh, pray first before we jump in and just rightly line our hearts. So God. We come here this morning again, and we just say that we want to be people that, that delight in your word, that delight in you, Jesus, the word become flesh, who dwelt among us. God, that we'd be people that have beheld and are beholding your beauty, that we'd be transformed. God, that those things that we are lost in right now, we're struggling with, and we feel broken or fragile. Jesus, we pray this morning that you would connect us to a story that has been going on throughout all eternity, one in which, God, you have welcomed us, invited us to be a part of. So, Jesus, have your way this morning. Let my words uh, be able to cut to people's hearts as your spirit does his work. So we commit this morning, God, to your care, to continue the work of transformation, maybe to even, for some of us, begin the work of transformation, but have your way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 1 says this, blessed is the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his or her delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, and the wind drives them away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, and the way of the wicked will ultimately perish. Um, even though this is the very first psalm, there's also a debate as to like when this psalm was actually written and then ultimately placed, but this is the psalm that kind of opens up the gateway into 
150 other psalms that are going to come down the way. Um, and one of the very first things that a lot of Bible scholars and teachers and sages throughout the ages have identified is that this psalm actually kind of sets the tone or the tenor for the remainder of the entire book of psalms. In other words, the question is, is what should be the posture of your heart, my heart, or the heart of a person that is going to find or discover life and what should that posture look like? And so what he does, it's kind of a series of contrasts, if you notice that. Some of the contrasts that he identifies is the path of the foolish, even though he doesn't necessarily use this language, it's implied in other places as well. The foolish to the wise, or the righteous to the wicked. So again, don't, don't get too hung up on your idea or understanding of the word righteous. The word righteous just simply means align, one who aligns himself with the way of God, or the path that is right. The wicked is the, the one that basically obstinately or stubbornly um, or, or uh, inadvertently even just says, no, I'll, I'll, I'll go my own path. Um, it's what is defined as the way of the wicked. Uh, thirdly, we see that there's another type of contrast between that which is a fruitful tree and chaff, which is just, uh, you know, uh, something that just is blown away, like leaves. Think of something like that, chaff that's just blown away, has no roots, no system, no stability. Uh, it's just constantly moving with whatever the constant cultural narrative is. So what he's suggesting is that the way of the righteous or the way of the wise or the way of the fruitful tree is deeply connected to one's delight in or proportionate to the one's delight in the Torah. Listen to what he says. I'm going to take a look at four words and then we'll kind of wrap this up. So we see that the people that are like this, number one, they're ones, they're people that delight in, they meditate on, they're transformed by, they're blessed and honored within the context of one word, Torah. So with that, I want to jump in and take a look at some ideas with regard to what does it mean to delight in the Torah. So again, listen to what he says. Blessed is the man who, and then he goes on, if you want to jump down to the second verse, he says, who, uh, his, whose delight is in the law of God. So the word law uh, literally is the Hebrew word Torah. Now, again, some of us, when we think about the word law, we think of like the Ten Commandments, or maybe we think of the first five book of Moses. But the reality is, is that for the most part, this word Torah can basically be used to summarize the sum total of God's revealed word of himself. What we would call maybe even the Old Testament. Obviously, today's world, we would look at it and just say it's, it's a description of the entire word of God. The law of God is not just simply uh, didactic, meaning teaching, but it's also storyline. And that's one of the things that we're going to pick up over the next few weeks is that when God talks about his law, it's, it's, God actually does not even give really commands uh, until several chapters, many, many chapters into the Bible itself. I mean, he gives Adam and Eve an initial command, but God doesn't give the community of God's people a command until the book of Exodus. But for the most part, what you have is a story, just a long storyline, and all of it is intended to take you somewhere. And what I would suggest to us is that the one who delights in God's law is the one that's going to be positioning himself or posturing himself to receiving these things that God has in store for them. So the idea is that the Torah is the word of God. So whoever this person is, their delight is in God's law. They love God's law. They look at God's law, and they're not offended by it. They're not put off by it. They may have questions about it, but at the end of the day, there's this deep desire to want to be formed, transformed by the word of God, by what God has to say. So the questions that we should be asking is, what is God saying? Well, whatever it is that God's saying, I want to know what God says, because I want my heart to be transformed by whatever it is that God says. 
So there's this eagerness or this hunger that's in one's heart that says, I want whatever it is that God has spoken to become my reality. There's a author by the name of James K.A. Smith. He says this, Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but he forms our very loves. This is really important. He goes on and says, he isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into your mind. He's after nothing less than your wants, your loves, and your longings. Isn't that good? Your wants, your loves, your longings. This is what Jesus is up to. He's not interested in just conforming you to whatever your idea of what religious people look like. In fact, it's very possible that whatever you think religious people look like, Jesus' aim is to actually shape you into something entirely different than whatever that is. Jesus is interested in shaping you into the image of himself. Loving. It's funny to me because even in talking with people that would call themselves atheists, it's fascinating to me to even have dialogue with people that would associate as that or even as a staunch agnostic. They would say, I don't quite get God, but Jesus, he seems really cool. He seems like a guy that actually cares about the environment, cares about people, cares about others. He seems like a really good guy. And it's awesome to me because I had this unique opportunity at times to just simply say, well, get this. God is actually just like Jesus. He's always been like Jesus. You may not have always known that, but that's what the New Testament tells us. When Jesus comes in this world, he reveals to us that this is what the Father's always been like. He's full of love. And so what Jesus is up to is he's not just simply aiming to give you more info, but to transform you. You can't get away from this. This is everywhere. This is what it means to be a disciple. Because, again, the word disciple basically means a, a follower, uh, a doer, an actor, someone that is uh, literally being trained and transformed by your master. So here's what I would go on to even say. He contrasts this, the psalmist does, with the way of the wicked or the way of the unrighteous, the way you want to describe it. Next slide. He goes on and he says, they walk in the counsel of the wicked. They stand in the way of the sinners. They sit in the seat of the scoffers. Now there's this progression here, and I'll just let Eugene Peterson do what he does best and describe how he does this because he does a better job at using minimal words compared to mine. So he says this, the movement from wicked to sinners to scoffers is from the bad actor to the habitual wrongdoer, to the person who is fixed in his ways and looks down on everyone else. That, that's literally what the Hebrew word identifies. It's first of all, someone that's just sort of in the company of others, right? They're just simply, as he describes it, they're walking. They're walking by. They're just walking by. But they're walking in this company of people. They may just simply be a curious onlooker. You just may be someone that is interested. You're curious. What's going on over at that party? What's going on over in this particular region? What's happening? But you're just curious. It's nothing but curiosity. But it's that curiosity that is beginning to shape your feet, shape the direction of your life. And then it transitions as it goes on into, as he describes, stands in the way of the sinners. So rather than moving, you now stop. There is, there's a lack of progression. Now you've kind of stopped, but you are standing in the way what he describes as sinners. In other words, doing actions that are not in alignment with God. That's what a sinner is. Don't get too hung up on that word. The word sinner just simply means missing the mark. You're missing the very aim for which Yahweh, your creator God, created you to live and fulfill and to live according to. That's what it means. Now, uh, a transgressor, which is another word that's kind of used up here as well, is someone that 
that purposefully violates the way that things are. They know in their heart it's what God says, but they violate it nonetheless. And that's where he leads on to the very next one. He says, now they sit in the seat of the scoffers. The word sit that he basically uses to describe here is really this posture of one. They are in the position of judgment. Now, they're the ones that judge and critique and criticize and put down everybody else, make fun of. Anyone that is not like them, that's what it means to, to move on into this. So the progression is from walking to standing to sitting. And he says, but the reality is that those that are being transformed, they have this initial delight inside of them. Their delight is in the law of God. So the question that you have to think about and wrestle with from time to time, really often, actually goes so far as to say, is next slide, is really what are the desires that you have? What are the deepest desires that you have? Now, I want to make a distinguishing mark about this that don't necessarily get hung up on what are your strongest desires. What are your deepest desires? So your strongest desires might be what you feel oftentimes the most. Your deepest desires are the desires that go beneath your strongest desires. So your strongest desire might be to eat really bad food, but your deepest desire is to look trim and fit and have six-pack abs. But your strongest desires are to eat habit and to go to In-N-Out and to eat all sorts of stuff that you know is bad for you. But as a follower of Jesus, your deepest desires you want to be like Jesus. Your strongest desires may be to download porn or to do things that violate your conscience or to be in places where you know you ought not to be or to be making decisions you know you ought not to be making. But your deepest desires to be like Jesus. What are your deepest desires? What has your heart? What do you think about? Which leads us to the next thing, which is they meditate. Meditation. It's a great word. Again, let me use uh, Eugene Peterson's example of this meditation. He says this, meditation is the language of the psalmist uh, that this word meditate has to do with slow eating, literally to slowly chew or to masticate, to suck on a lollipop. And he describes example of his dog chewing on a bone. This idea of gnawing away, uh, enjoying oneself over and over again. And I'll read another quote from him in just a second that I think brings this to light. Uh, Isaiah chapter 31 verse 4, there's this fascinating passage. Isaiah chapter 31 verse 4 says this, as a young, or as a lion or a young lion growls. So the word growl there in the Hebrew is actually the word that we would use here for meditate. He meditates over his prey. So what, what is it, what's the connection between a young lion or a lion sitting over his food and meditation? Right? Think about that. He's gnawing on it. He's chewing on it. He's enjoying it. He's savoring. He's drooling blood all over his face, all right? So if you're vegan, you're offended right now. But the point of the matter is you get this idea that he's enjoying, thoroughly enjoying, thoroughly engaged in this practice of engaging with this bone. So that's what meditation is. Um, meditation, Eugene Peterson goes on to say this. Uh, he says, the English word meditate is far too tame for what is being signified. Meditate seems more suited to what my wife does while sitting in a rose garden with a Bible on her lap. But when Isaiah's lion meditated, it chewed and swallowed using teeth, tongue, stomach, and intestines. Isaiah's lion meditated his prey. You and I meditate the revelation of Scripture in Jesus. Isn't that good? That's what meditation is. We think about, we meditate upon, we consider, uh, we are going over and over again. And it could involve Scripture memory. It could involve just focusing on a word or thinking about an image, an idea, a concept that's been portrayed or put forth in Scripture. 
Um, this is what it means to think about and meditate upon these things. One other final thought I would say with this is that the psalmist, in his meditation, let me, let me, let me say what meditation is not, because, again, this word meditation has a lot of cultural connotation as well, because, uh, in fact, I, I don't even like the word meditation, to be quite frank with you. I know it's, it's in the translated English version of the Bible, but the actual Hebrew word that's used there is totally different than the way we typically think of it. So in our modern world, we tend to think about meditation through a... Eastern mindset or Buddhist meditation or whatnot, and the idea is to empty one's mind from anything, anything that would distract, but the reality of, of Christian meditation or Hebraic meditation is the exact opposite. It's not to empty your mind. It's actually to flood your mind. It's to fill your mind with images of God's word, with the picture of God's word, with who God is in his word, and I would even go so far as to say that one of the main aims of meditating on Scripture, as the psalmist no doubt would have done, he would have thought about who God is, what God is up to in this world, what God has done in the past, what God has done to his predecessors, what God has done to his family members, over and over again. You know what he's doing? He's reminding himself of his place in the story. Who am I? Where do I belong? Well, that's right. I'm the son of Abraham. I've been redeemed and rescued by Yahweh. That's who I am. How should I act? Well, how I act is going to be completely linked to who I am. And I would suggest to us, in our culture, in our world today, we, have, we are a society of homeless people. And I don't mean homeless in a literal sense. I mean society of homeless people that we are lost. We literally don't know to whom we belong to. So what we are doing as a society is we are looking for another cultural narrative to tell us who we are, where we belong, how we should act, who we should love, how we should live. And that process, for the most part, is not only exhausting, but it's killing us because it's not giving us the answers that satisfy our hearts. But Scripture does is it restores you, puts you back in the story. It reminds you the sum total of the weight of the world does not belong on your shoulders. It belongs on his. He's the one who's carrying you. He loves you. He's adopted you. He's forgiven you. He's washed you. You belong to him. You are part of his story. You are not lost. You are not an orphan. You don't have to figure out the ways of life on your own. It doesn't belong to you. You don't have to carry the weight of the world on your shoulders. You belong to him. And meditation puts you back in the story. And that's no doubt what the psalmist would have done. That's what Scripture meditation would have always done. It would have put you back into where do I belong in light of or in lieu of this great, almighty, loving, powerful God. That's what meditation does. And I would suggest there are cultural forms of meditation that have nothing to do with Jesus, have nothing to do with God, that tell us you are a consumer. You are nothing but your sexual desires. You are nothing but confused person or human being. You are nothing but your job. You are nothing but what you wear or what you own or how good you look on Instagram. You are nothing but that. So make sure it counts. And again, if you adopt that story, your life will be full of turmoil because you will never be enough. You will always find somebody with more followers, somebody with more of a following, with somebody with more of a better look, somebody with a greater storyline than you, and you will always feel like you don't have enough. You've never attained. Or you can receive the story that God invites you into. That's what meditation does. Thirdly, 
we see that there is this transformation that happens. As it goes on, we see that there's this transformation, and it's contrasted between a tree and what he describes as chaff. So he says, those who delight in God's Torah, God's word, um, and meditate upon it day and night, they'll be like a tree planted by rivers of living water. And he says, they will yield forth fruit, and their leaf will not wither. In all that they do, they, they will prosper, meaning that there's this idea of life, life that comes to you as you submit your ways, your heart, your mind, your thoughts to God. Here's the reality, is that you will be transformed by God. God will do the transformational work. It's not a tree. A tree is not somehow pushing out an apple. It just naturally happens. You never see a level of freaking out on behalf of a tree, I don't think. Somehow forcing itself to become fruitful. It just, you just got to make sure that it's in the right place, receiving the right nutrients, getting the right amount of water. And if all those things are in alignment, then that tree will then naturally burst forth in fruitfulness. But then he goes on to say the opposite are like the chaff that will just simply be driven away. And finally, in closing, I want to finish with this thought. He goes on to say that those that love the Torah, that delight in God's word, they will be blessed. So he says, blessed is the one who delights in God's word. So what does the word blessed mean? So again, this is one of those Christian words, right? Um, every culture, every community has its own like lingo, right? That shouldn't shock you that Christians have their own lingo as well, right? Um, techies have their own lingo. Different people from different countries have their own idioms in which they use. Uh, Christianity has its own lingo. One of the words that Christianity oftentimes uses is the word blessed. So again, depending on what type of background you came from, you may have been in a super blessed background, like blessing is a word that gets used all the time, or you might have been in a room or a, a background which is like, we don't want to use those words because it's too confusing. But let's talk a little bit about what that word blessed means. Simply the word blessed, some translations might even use the word fortunate, um, but I think that implies a sense of like fortune, like like we, we don't find favor based upon lucky fortune. It's, it's a different idea, but the idea is that of being honored, what it means. Blessed, honored, privileged are those that find this relational connectedness to God. And he goes on to say, verse 1, blessed is the man who dot, dot, dot. And then last verse of the entire passage says this, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. That word know that's actually used there where the Lord knows, it's a really important word. It's a word that basically means uh, it's actually used in the very beginning of the Bible where it says, and Adam knew Eve, his wife. It's a very intimate type of knowledge, a relational type of knowledge. And so what he's saying is that those that take delight in God's word, you are known by Yahweh himself. There is, and, and to be in that relational context, to know that you are known by God, to know that God knows you, he doesn't overlook you, he doesn't look beyond you. See, we live in a world in which we are so oftentimes trying to be noticed and known by somebody. In fact, that's one of the things that I've been watching some YouTube videos recently. I've been talking a little bit about uh, social networking and just the whole social media reality is that there, it's built upon this idea that if we put information about ourselves out there, then we will get these hits of likes back. And that feeds kind of this dopamine fix that we have. And what it does, it causes to feel, I am somebody, or I've arrived, or I'm somebody that is wanted by somebody else. So when we post a photo of ourselves or whatever, we are hoping for that dopamine fix to constantly go. So every time we look and we're like, ah, more likes, or someone actually commented, that's amazing. Now you have this dopamine fix. But the reality is, at the heart of who we are as human beings, 
is this reality. We want to be known. And this is exactly what the psalmist is saying, is that those who take delight in, meditate on, transformed by the Torah of God, they are known by God. The word that we know, that God knows the way of the righteous. I think naturally in closing, we can ask the question, how does God actually know the way of the righteous? In the book of John, in the book of uh, the New Testament, we see this passage. It says, in the beginning was the word. The word is the idea, the concepts, the realities, who God is, what is on God's mind, what is God thinking. The word became flesh and actually dwelt among us, that God's word became flesh. So what we love is not just simply scripture, but we love the Torah become flesh. We love Christ. Christ is the end game. Christ is what we long for. The word of God, the Bible, this thing that we hold on our laps is sacred in that it allows us to see the beauty of Jesus. We want to be transformed by Christ. We don't worship a Bible. We worship Jesus. He's our Savior. He's the one whom we love. We give our hearts to him. And so what we see is that we are told that Jesus is the righteous one. God knows what it means to enter into our world, to face the challenges, the conflicts, the hardships that even the psalmist is facing. And what we see with Jesus is that Jesus ultimately loved God with all of his heart. He meditated upon scriptures day and night, just as the psalmist did. He delighted in God with all of his heart. Jesus always did everything to demonstrate the greatness of God in his life. But see, here's the thing. If you look at Jesus as nothing more than an example of an incredibly gifted and God-centered human being, Jesus as an example will crush you. Because you will look at Jesus as an example and be like, I ain't that good. And you're right, you're not that good. And the more you focus on it, the more you see that you will feel the sense of condemnation pressing you down. Because if Jesus is nothing more than an example, then Jesus the example will crush us. But if you see Jesus as your savior, meaning Jesus comes in this world as the righteous one who always meditated upon God and his word, who always delighted in the ways of God and did it faithfully all the way to the very end, even while he was on the cross, if you see Jesus, not just simply as an example, but if you see Jesus as your savior, being the righteous one in the place of the unrighteous, being the ungod, being, acting, taking upon himself the consequences of the ungodly for the really ungodly, if you see Jesus as a savior, then to the degree that you see Jesus as a savior, then what will happen in return, your doubts will transform into faith, your cynicism into delight, your sense of lostness back into a place in the story, and your chaff-like status into a vibrant tree-like state. To the degree that you see that Jesus as savior will set you free and liberate you transforming the type of person. So over the next few, really next 360 or some odd days, our hope would be that you would enter in and read scripture with us. There's a Facebook group. It's called Your Biblical Literacy with Calvary Sully. You can check that out. Just find it. And there's almost 100 people on there that we almost daily have been in really cool dialogue. And it's been fun seeing people not only connect, but reading through scripture. And again, some of you might be like, we're already seven days into it. I have not even read. I'm so far behind. You're really not that far behind. So check this out. Right now, we're at just about chapter 25. Tomorrow, we'll be jumping into chapter 25 of Genesis. And let me say this, that if you 
that, that seems totally overwhelming to you, just, just pick up in chapter 25. It's fine. It's all good. There's no condemnation. But the idea would be to read the scripture along with us. There's all sorts of groups that are available for you guys. But ultimately, the hope, the aim, would be that you'd be transformed, that we'd become like Jesus through this practice. So I'm done. I'm going to have worship him come on up, and uh, I'm going to pray. Why don't we all stand? We're going to respond to God right now by singing, by partaking of communion, and by praying. And as we sing, I want to finish with this really great quote by this guy by the name of James K.A. Smith. Quoted him earlier. That's what he says. It's a great passage. He says, worship works from the top down. You might say, in worship, we don't just come to show God our devotion and give him our praise. We are called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes and molds us top down. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains hearts. Isn't that good? It's where God retrains our hearts. As we uh, wrap this up, um, my hope would be that your prayer would be, Jesus, retrain my heart. Because maybe for some of you, what you love is what's killing you. That's what's killing you. It's not just the sin. It's not just the action. It's that you love that thing. And what Jesus comes to do is to rewire our affections rewires our hearts to love that which is good, to love him. So let me pray. And no matter where you're at, no matter what types of circumstances are going on in your life, turn to Jesus, trust him, call upon him, ask God to rewire, to forgive, to wash, to cleanse your heart. Let's sing, let's respond, let's partake of communion. And uh, let me pray. God, thank you for meeting us here. We give you this time as we respond to you, God, in song.